This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hey, welcome back to Almost Heretical. Last episode, we started a series on Jesus, gender, authority, all that good stuff. And we're going to continue that series this episode, getting into one of the first of the key passages we're going to look at. But before we do, just want to remind you all, we would love to hear from you. Uh, our email is contact at almostradical.com. Any stories, questions, thoughts, even if you just want to vent some anger our way, uh, we'd love to hear where everybody's at and create some dialogue around this topic. So hit us up. Okay, so Tim, what are we talking about this week? First Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Veils, heads, glory, angels, disgrace, all sorts of weird stuff. Ah, okay. I always heard head covering, not veiled. But okay, so wait, where am I? I'll read this. Where am I Where am I going? Say it again. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. 1 Corinthians, uh, let's see, 11, 11, 2. Okay, 2 through 16. Oh, man. This is like, I remember when like they would call on you to read a certain passage and you're just like hoping that it's going to be like two or three verses and then you're like, oh crap, it's 14 verses or whatever. Okay. Uh, buckle up. And then you're, and then you do the thing where you're like scanning ahead, making sure that you can like pronounce all the names. (laughs) Oh, I got Zebulun. (laughs) We've all been there. Okay. Here we go. This is uh, this is the NIV. I praise you for remembering me. And, and and then the other one is like when you kind of like you read the first couple words and you start looking around, people like make sure you're like in the right book or anything. Cause <laughs> you, so tell me if I'm not reading the right from the right place. Okay. These are all my insecurities coming out. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man... <clears throat> Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Oh yeah, that verse. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, that was it. Okay, let's just start with uh, your kind of gut reaction. Probably been a little while since you read this passage, Nate. Uh, What's some of the stuff that you immediately think of or things that you, uh, ideas you were taught or kind of interpretations you'd heard? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like this whole just the hierarchy thing again, that like God is at the top and then man and then woman, but these aren't like roles of... um, these aren't like roles of like, not the like lording over or something like that. Like it's supposed to all be in humility or, or whatever, but, um, but this is kind of the order of like, you know, 
authority slash decision making. Um, and I've heard like a lot of jokes over the years in Bible college and as a pastor, that kind of stuff about like, you know, the husband making the final decision um, and needing to kind of control his wife and the way, you know, but it's often just in a joke and not actually the way it actually happens in the, the family or whatever. But yeah, so just basically this is Paul doing what Paul does, which is talking about the hierarchy of God, man, woman. Um, but then uh, I knew a lot of people that wanted to take Paul like at his word and not try to explain away the covering your head thing. And so like there's, I have some friends that go to churches where they cover their head um, and so, which I always was like, Hey, might as well like follow all the things he's saying and not just try to get out of one of them or whatever. So I was like, eh, that's kind of cool. And then uh, I just kind of noticed this one. I mean, I've obviously read it before, but, um, as we're on this topic, uh, verse, verse 12, where he says for as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. I thought that was kind of interesting. It's talking about like, you don't have men without women and kind of a little bit of the leveling of playing field there a bit. And for a while, what I've sort of thought about this is like, it's very culturally bound to their world they were in. And that's sort of how I kind of like make sense of what he's saying here. Um, but yeah, so it, it kind of sounds pretty bad for Paul, I guess this um, in my, it was just a, like a plain reading. It sounds pretty bad for Paul and like it pretty well supports the complementarian kind of worldview, I guess. Yeah. I, totally remember even uh in the stage of life where i was pretty strong leaning towards egalitarian kind of universal equality ideas uh the best i could make sense of this for a long time was that the culture expected women uh to sort of know their place uh, and one of the ways they were expected to do that was to cover their heads and paul was basically giving in to the culture right he was like that that part of him hadn't really been shaped by Christ yet. And so the best way to make sense of this in any sort of like, you know, decent, uh, create any decent theology of this was basically just to ignore that part, right? But what I've realized since is that that was actually making a similar error to what I think complementarians do in this passage, which is, again, breaking a, a pretty fundamental hermeneutical rule, which is again, when there's fuzzy interpretation or uh, interpretation is difficult and contested within a passage, then pr priority should always be given to interpretations that make for a thoroughly cohesive reading of the entire passage and the entire letter. In other words, if one interpretation is able to explain how all of the thoughts connect and how this presents one logical strain of ideas. Wait, like the angel verse. Exactly. <laughs> one of my favorite verses or, you know, partial lines in the Bible just because of the angels, <laughs> which we'll talk about in a sec. But basically, if there is the possibility of an interpretation that has a lot of explanatory power for the rest of the passage and the rest of the text, then that interpretation should always be given uh, priority in the in the debate, essentially. And, and I'm thoroughly convinced that the complementarian uh, interpretation of this passage, which we'll get into, basically, that this is Paul asserting that men, by nature, are authority figures over women, and that Paul here is applying that idea by making women veil their heads, wear veils or head coverings, uh, that that basically makes no sense in the context of this passage or this letter. Uh, and there are some other interpretations that actually make 
a lot of explanatory sense. Okay, so let's do it. So what uh, what is he actually trying to say then, if he's not saying that? And then how does the for the angels or whatever uh, calling all angels or what what is it? <laughs> uh, that was a song, right? And then there's touched by an angel. Yeah. I actually, touched. touched by an angel has far more to do with this passage than calling all angels. <laughs> I never watched, was it? A, was that a show, Touched by, I never watched it. Oh yeah, I kind of grew up on that. Um, calling all angels is a good song by Train, though. You were at church, I was pretty much just watching <laughs> Touched by an Angel. <laughs> I don't know, yeah, no, I never saw it. Okay, so there's so much here, we don't have space to cover all of it. Uh, there's so much interesting stuff. It's It's fascinating, and some of it's really important. Okay, the first one, if any of you guys followed the debate... Uh, the debate in scholarship for some time now has been over the meaning, intended meaning of the word head. It's a metaphor. It can mean both authority and source. Those are the two most common meanings in Paul's usage and in biblical uh, usage of the metaphor. Oftentimes it, it kind of uh, insinuates both. So the commentarian side wants to say, hey, this word here basically when Paul says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, the head of Christ is God, that that means authority. So just switch out the word head with authority. And on the egalitarian side, people push back to say, no, 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 it means source, that the source of every man is Christ, the source of the woman is the man, and the source of Christ is God. And essentially, uh, the the primary pushback against that idea of source is is people basically asking the question, in what possible way, in what meaningful way, can man be the source of woman? And because they don't know the answer to that question, they've basically said, we've stumped you, and this clearly is a matter of authority. But this Westfall does some really good, careful, detailed work here. But basically, in both this passage and another passage, which we'll look at in another episode, where Paul's using the same head metaphor... Uh, there's evidence within the passage, multiple levels of evidence, that what he means is uh, is source. So, for instance, look at verse 12. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. This is part of the same argument, right? <laughs> we're, we're all here in the same passage, and it's referencing basically back to the same idea. And there, there are two things going on here. The first is just basic Old Testament careful theology. So Paul grew up on the Torah, right? He read the Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament writings uh, through and through and through, had uh, had them memorized. And what's the story? Basically, you have a, a Genesis 1 creation account and a Genesis 2 creation account. How are human beings created according to those two stories? Uh, the, the rib of the man. Right. In one account, you just have this statement that God made mankind in his image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Okay? Just a statement. Then in the second account, you have Adam and Eve, right? It's almost these two different depictions. And in that account, God creates Adam, Adam, man from the dust, and then takes the side, ribs a bad translation, it basically means from the, the side of him, I don't know if anyone ever taught me this, but I grew up thinking that I had one less rib on one of my sides because of that whole thing that happened. Um, so I remember like feeling and thinking that I felt the difference. And um, now I, I know that's crazy now, but no, I don't think anyone ever taught me that. I'm not I'm not putting one on blast here, but I think I just interpreted it that way. You've told me that before, and I am equally astonished every time 
I hear it. That's another way of saying like he thinks I'm stupid. <laughs> no, just like, <laughs> wow, we, the world is weird and Christians are weird, all that. Uh, You're welcome. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Uh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. So the idea there is side. The whole point, it's this narrative depiction of the equality, their equal essence. So, uh, and even complementarians will, will grant that basically there's like equal essence in creation. But just think what's interesting is you basically have one story that just says men and women are created that are equally in the image of God. And they're, they're both co-rulers with God is the implication. Then another story where man is created first and then woman is created from the man. That actually sets up some re- some really interesting, basically theological reflection that Paul and, and many other careful Jewish readers would have been able to do in deducing some significance from those two different stories and kind of the, the way they overlap together. But that's the first sense that in, in verse 12, woman came from man, like Eve came from Adam. That's the idea. He was the source of her life. He was the source of her, literally her body, her existence. And uh, that's been taken to mean that therefore that somehow gives Adam supremacy, but that's nowhere in this text. It's just saying he was the source. Then Paul actually reciprocates it, right? But then says, so also man is born of woman. So it's actually as if what Paul sees here is that you both have this story back in Genesis 2 that Adam was the source of woman. And he is comparing that to Christ being the source of man or kind of like the, the life-giving first fruits, the one who pioneered, went ahead and provided access to life and now can give life to man and compares that to, to Christ as, you know, it's kind of that begotten language who, uh, who came from or was sourced from uh, God. But he's, he can reciprocate that at the same time and point out that also, by the way, men come from women, right? Women have the babies. <laughs> Man is born of woman. And he's basically using this in the opposite. It's, it's not to say that men are therefore higher status, uh, superior to women, supposed to be in charge. He's actually pointing out that it's reciprocal, right? This, this source language actually goes both directions. He says, but everything comes from God. So, I remember you and I have probably both seen them. There are these pictures with a pyramid, right? And it's like God, men, women. I don't know if they go children beneath that or something. I've seen them as an umbrella, not a pyramid. It's like this umbrella, which is, I think it comes from this verse or not. Yeah, this verse. Yeah, this and, and another. So big picture. The first big piece is Paul's clearly, he's signaling this multiple times throughout this passage and the other passage where head is used as, as a metaphor. Uh, he's signaling that he's thinking about the Genesis accounts. He's thinking about the creation accounts. 
and there's a piece of another piece of like basically Jewish creation idea ideas or theology that plays in here, which was the idea that part of a woman, basically in the Adam Eve story, part of women's being created as a, as a matching fitting, uh, wonderful partner to the man was when, when God created Adam, Adam was created in the image of God, right? And now pairing that with Genesis one, you, you know that you can't say that that means woman wasn't created in the image of God because it says male and female, they were created. Hmm. But there's this sense, and this is attested to in, in Jewish literature, that because the woman was then created from the image of God, she was the image of God and the image of Adam, who was also the image of God, in the sense that she was doubly the image of God. Ah. And this was actually a, a thing of honor, not pointing, basically, the reference here that, sh- that she came from Adam is actually giving her higher status. It's not pointing to her inferiority. And, uh, but related to that was that there was this prominent idea that, that a woman's beauty, physical beauty, was integral to what it, what it meant for uh, a woman to be the glory of man. So when you look down in verse seven, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Here, image and glory are kind of used synonymously. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. The idea is that this, <laughs> this narrative depiction of a woman being created that is suitable for man or that man came to desire was basically kind of like this high literary depiction of male attraction towards females. And it basically was was hinting at sexuality and beauty and the prominent role of feminine beauty in relationships in the world and suggesting that a woman's beauty is a significant part of what is true about women, that women's and women's bodies are aesthetically pleasing to men by design. And that is something Paul is celebrating, not denigrating. It's not a threat. (laughs) Female sexuality is not a threat to men in Paul's thinking. It's a gift from God to men that Paul's highlighting here. Now, now why am I bringing this up? It's because this makes cohesive sense of Paul's uses of head in different languages, and his focus on hair. And we'll see in a second, it makes sense of the angel's line. So I think you and I may have talked about this at some point, Nate, but uh, did you know there's actually prominent uh, scholarship out there that has discovered or rediscovered that in Hippocrates, uh, who's the Greek, uh, basically one of the early Greek medical uh, thinkers, medical philosophers, uh, basically doctors, where we get the Hippocratic Oath ah, right. Right, and, and medical practice, <laughs> that in his writings, he was the leading medical expert of his day, that uh, women's hair was deemed essentially uh, a counterpart to male genitalia. Huh. Yeah, and don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I feel like there's a joke here, and I'm supposed to... I, I feel like that's my role is to do the joke. Here and I, I, just, I yeah I don't I yeah I don't know what uh, I don't know what joke to do. All right, I'll edit it in. <laughs> All right, if you come up with one, you can you can hit me. Uh, so it's debated over how, how much Paul agrees with that idea or not. But what's clear is that Paul is in somewhat similar position of the basically the leading science of his day, in the sense that 
uh, women's hair was highly associated with female sexuality and fertility. Okay. So on one end of the extreme, Paul literally thinks that female hair is their genitals and is responsible for reproduction. On the other end of the spectrum, he just thinks hair is a symbol for beauty, sexuality, fertility, reproduction uh, for women, that it is not considered that culturally in, in men. That doesn't mean Paul is teaching this, right? This is just the world that he is <laughs> is speaking into. Yeah. So connect all these pieces, right? There's this idea that uh, it's basically touching on, in this interpretation at least, uh, the idea of head is focusing on this this idea not of authority but of source, uh, which relates to the conversation because it's talking about sexuality and there's this long-standing idea that that woman came from man as a literary way of speaking about uh, positive feminine sexuality, which is exactly what hair represents in the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day. Okay, so from there, Paul talks about how for a man, it's it's actually considered dishonoring and disgraceful to cover his head. But for a woman, it would be considered disgraceful, even to the point of, of the humiliation of having your head shaved, uh, for her to not cover her head. Now, this is just basic fact of Greco-Roman scholarship. It was explicitly illegal in the Roman Empire for prostitutes and female slaves to wear a veil. Hmm. And this is just a piece where Westfall and so many others, most of them women, have done so much important work on on veiling and, and in cultures that veil, on what it means to women that veil. That's It's pretty foreign to Western culture. I, I learned a lot, and a lot of it actually is coming f- uh, from equivalents in modern-day veiling cultures like in the Middle East that are actually far more similar to Greco-Roman context than our own Western culture. So we've interpreted this as the assumption is women uh, didn't want to veil. They were wanting to be rebellious. And Paul lays down the law by referencing male authority, lays down the law that they have to stop being rebellious and, and cover their heads. And there's a much better, much more explanatory case to be made, read in context, that what was likely happening was that women in the church, which these are house churches meeting in someone's you know, living room, essentially, that at least one or, or more of the women wanted to veil their heads, but were being told they shouldn't veil their heads by men in that church. Now, now why would that have happened? And, and again, this is where I've... They want to they see, the, see that hair. <laughs> On, on Well, it's complicated, but basically the reason prostitutes and female slaves were not allowed to veil is what a veil meant, what it symbolized and, and communicated, was that that woman was off of the market sexually and therefore was a woman of honor. Mm-hmm. Okay? So if you were a middle to upper class free woman, you could wear a veil when you went out to the market that basically told the men in society, you are not allowed to rape me. That sounds like a terrible place. <laughs> such, honestly, such a, such a gnarly world. And I don't think America's great, but, but so many eras in the world <laughs> were so harsh for women. So the reason why, why slaves and basically prostitutes were, uh, prostitutes and female slaves were 
there is a blurred line between the two because they were sexual property of male society. The reason they were forbidden from wearing veils was because they were not free women sexually. They were sexual property and therefore could legally be sexually assaulted. Okay, but a but a woman who was the wife of a man was protected, not on the basis of her equality, that she was worthy of protection. She was protected on the basis that she was a man's property. And therefore, she could not be sexually assaulted because that would be performing an offense against her husband. Okay. Okay, so what's Paul? Yeah, what's Paul saying here then? Okay, so picture this. In this church, it is in all likelihood that there were both prostitutes and female slaves in this church community that Paul is writing to in Corinth. Actually, women were by far the, the most predominant disciples in the church, some of the most predominant leaders in the early church. And actually, there's been a lot of scholarship that's focused on how women were, were most likely uh, by far the most effective evangelists spreading Christianity uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And, and Christianity was most popular amongst the lower classes precisely because of the anti-hierarchical ethic that we were talking about in the last episode. So you can picture a scene where you have this community that Paul has said elsewhere that there is no longer any social status differentiation. The differences between Jew, Gentile, slave-free, male, female have have been nullified oh, in this I community. See. And for the first time ever... Wait, wait, wait. Can I do it? Can I do it? Oh, sure. So... Now, because he's leveling the playing field, as he's always done, Paul's always doing that. He's saying every woman cover that. He's not saying whether the covering of the head is like the right thing to do or the wrong thing. He's not saying that. He's saying there's not going to be two groups of women where one of them doesn't have their heads covered, the prostitutes, and one group does, the honorable women or whatever. He's like, everyone's just going to cover them. You guys are all honorable in the sight of this community and of God. He's doing that and more. So he's breaking the law Ooh. by telling uh, low-status women that they can uh, veil and recover their dignity and honor within this community. He's also telling men, every man in the house church, that they do not have authority to decide what women should do with their body. So look at verse 10. This is one of the most blatant mistranslations in the history of the church. Uh, if you read the NIV, they do a pretty good job. They say, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. We'll skip the because the angels part for a second. The whole point Paul's giving this decree is to say that women in the church get to have authority over their own damn head. Okay, look at what the ESV did. We've already pointed out the ESV was explicitly set out to make a complementarian version of the Bible. It says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. There's literally no word symbol there. The word is just authority, power. It's the same word. And the ESV and a few other translations literally just can't comprehend this, that Paul would grant women authority over their own bodies. So they just insert two words that aren't in the text. <laughs> okay. The point of the passage is explicitly here. Paul is empowering women in the community using his power. Mm. We've talked about this in past episodes. This is a good example of when people have power and therefore have a responsibility to use it on behalf of others. Paul does that sometimes. Sometimes he lays down his power. Here he uses it to tell men, you do not have authority over the women in this community like the society tells you you do. Mm. So legally, socially, they are granted authority over 
all of the women in that community, especially over the, the slaves and prostitutes. And Paul says, no, no, you don't have authority. Women get authority over their own body. And this is supported, we don't need to get into all the details of this, by this idea because of the angels. It shows that what's, what's going on in Paul's head here is the idea of sexual risk. And, and it, it's showing that in, in context here, a veil represented protection from sexual risk, right? To put a veil on meant that you were no longer legally allowed to be raped. It seems to me, this line, because of the angels, the only logical reference is back to that weird stuff we talked about a while back in Genesis 6. I was wondering if you were going to get back to that, yeah. Yeah. Because that's like episodes 2 through seven or something like that you should check it out somewhere around there early stuff yeah it's it's one of the only sensible ideas back in genesis 6 you have one of the chapters of the story of what's gone wrong with the world is that women are not only unsafe sexually relationally socially with men but they're also in genesis 6 they get raped by these angelic beings and the point is to depict how cruel the world has become for women right that's what that's one of the primary ideas of these Genesis 1 through 11 stories about the fall is that the world has become a sick place for women. That's not how it was designed to be. Those with power, men and even angels, use that power to take advantage of women. So, so Paul seems to be hinting at that. Uh, and there's possibilities that there, uh, there is kind of this uh, overarching belief that when the church worshipped, that they were joining in the heavenly host uh, in worship. So there is some sort of like cosmic contact happening between uh, Christians and angels. Right, right. Uh, but regardless, it seems that the reference is to is to the, the risk presented by angels, which seems to affirm that the idea here is largely about, about women's hair as a sexual object and sexual symbol in the society that he is explicitly writing to the church, both to the men and women in the church, to say, hey, who gets to decide what women do with their body, their sexuality? It's the women, not the men. Yeah. And in other words, it's the exact opposite of how this has been interpreted that Paul is writing to tell the women what to do and tell the men that it's their job to tell the women what to do. Oh, I like this. I like this. And this is just number one. This is just the first passage we've gone over. You say there's like even better ones that we're going to hit. And that's what we're going to do on the show. That's what we're doing in this series. This is, uh, that's the end of this one. Um, come back next time for uh, the next episode in this series. If you have any questions, comments, um, concerns, or pushback or frustrations uh, with us or with uh, just the system and the way everything is, you can email us, contact at almostheretical.com. We read every single email and we pretty much respond to every email too, I think. So, all right, uh, we'll talk to you next time. Peace. Ooh, I'm liking this. I'm so excited, Timmy.